0: We find ourselves this morning in um, the 19th chapter of the book of John. <clears throat> and um, like I knew we were going to get here, right? When you start into a gospel account, you know what's going to happen towards the end. <clears throat> I mean, you know the, the plot and the storyline, hopefully, of, of, of Jesus's life. And so for the next two weeks, we are at the, the tough part. It's like on Easter, we preach this, but on Easter, we preach resurrection, you know, Maybe on a Good Friday service, we'll focus in on the suffering of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and the death of Christ on the cross. But then you get to go right into resurrection. And we uh, spend two weeks looking at the suffering of Christ. If you have your Bibles, it's John chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, it's not on the screen. You can use a pew Bible. It's page 905. People go, "Where's, uh, where's the book of John in the Bible?" And I say, um, "It's in the table of contents. That's where it is. Look it up there, and then you get a page number, then you can jump to it." Are y'all there? Who is sufficient for these things? Certainly I am not. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe came up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Then Pilate heard this statement and he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Let's pray. Father, as we come now and we think about this precious portion of text, as we think about Jesus, your life that you have given up as a ransom for many, that Jesus, you came to assuage God's wrath for us, may May this engender love, may this engender worship from the believers in this room and Lord, from the unbelievers in this room, for those who have yet to declare you both savior and king, Lord, over their lives. I pray that as we've just sung about, that they would see your glory, that they would see the glory of a beaten and torn savior that they would know that it is our sin that has their, even their sin, our sin collectively that has driven him there. And may we see how precious it is. And may we believe. So in your precious name, we pray. Amen. Um, thank you. You could be seated. So here's kind of, um, you know, it's kind of the, the biggie on the, on the eye chart, but nevertheless, we through a book of the Bible, so we preach through this section as well. And here's kind of where we're going today. This is the, the main idea, the big idea of the text is this, that as a demonstration of God's justice and love, Jesus, the suffering servant, that's what he's called in the Old Testament, uh, in particular in the book of Isaiah, and we'll get there, but Isaiah prophesies him. He doesn't give him a name. He calls him the suffering servant. Jesus is as the suffering servant. He stands in our place, assuaging the wrath of God and offering forgiveness to those who will receive him by faith. I tried to, um, I tried to think about this and I, I tried to just think beyond just like what's the, uh, what's the implications and the applications of this for us in our, in our daily life. I mean, that's kind of my task is to preach the Bible, but not just to teach through the Bible what these words mean and this is what's happening and give you like some kind of context. I mean, that's important, but beyond that, I think my job as a preacher is to apply God's word to your life so that when Monday rolls around and you know, your car won't start or your kids rebel or the phone, you get, a, you, know, you get the doctor's report or whatever may happen on your Monday. Whenever that happens, what we said on Sunday kind of uh, helps you, enables you, empowers you to face that suffering, whatever it may be, how small or how big or whatever else in life you may face. And so as I thought through this, like when you think about Jesus's flogging and Jesus's death, the, the easy one is, what does that for, mean for us as unbelievers? What well, means that you can be saved? It means that Jesus bears the punishment for your sins. But for those of us in the room, what does this mean? And I think what this means for us is I want us to see the the price that is paid for the gift of salvation. That Paul says in Ephesians 2 that faith even is a gift of God, that grace is a gift of God, that this salvation that you and I, that we stand in, I mean, we stand in a firm salvation because of what Christ has endured here. That you and I stand, we stand upon something solid that's more rock solid than your fickle faith. It's more rock solid than your good works. It's more rock solid than your religiosity. We stand in salvation, we stand in righteousness, a righteousness that we did not muster up, a righteousness that we do not own, a righteousness that Christ deserves and that Christ has. And you and I, we stand in that place. We stand upon a firm foundation that is Christ and that we could see that and the gift that it brings, I don't know how it works in your home, but here's how it sometimes works in my home. An anniversary would roll around and in and, and our family, like we, uh, we make a big to do out of uh, anniversaries. And I think that's right and that's a good thing. For those of you that are married, maybe you don't make a big deal out of your anniversary, but you really should. I mean, to me, I think uh, in marriages, I think anniversaries should trump birthdays. I mean, in birthdays, what do you celebrate? And you're like, hey, good job, you didn't die this year, right? But in anniversary, what you're celebrating is, hey, good job, we didn't kill one another this year, right? Like we're still here and we're still in love and we're still married. I mean, birthdays is pretty easy, just keep breathing. Marriages and anniversaries are really, really tough. And so in our family, we celebrate, uh, in my marriage, we celebrate anniversaries. My wife and I, we just celebrated 24 years of, of marriage. And so we get each other a gift. And when I give my wife a gift, this is how it works. She opens the gift and if she likes it, she's really excited. And then she asks this question, how much did it cost? How much did it cost? And then I tell her how much it cost. And then she'll say, "You spent too much." And then I'll say, "But I love you, and it's a token of my love for you. And I wish I could have given you more. I wish I I could have spent more on you." And then I'll say to Luann, "But I got it on sale, right?" It's okay. My prayer is is as we look at this chapter, as we see the the price paid for your salvation, the price Jesus paid to purchase you. See, I believe God's love is a particular love. It's not a generic love, but it's a particular love. I believe God's salvation is a particular salvation, a particular redemption. And he had you in mind, those of you who are saved and those of you who will be saved. He had you in mind, not just humanity in some generic sense, but you in particular. And then as you see this, you would see the love involved, the price paid, the cost involved in Jesus's um, life and death. Last week, we said that Jesus undergoes six different trials. Um, John kind of puts things a little, not out of order, but John just doesn't cover everything. John's not as, as keen or as concerned about uh, about, about sharing the details and getting everything, like the, all the details straight. I mean, that's just not his goal when he writes his gospel. It's not that he's not inspired. It's not that anything is untrue. It's just details aren't like kind of like me. I'm not a detail-oriented got person. It's like whoever put the lid on the communion t- uh, trays this morning. Evidently, they're not very detail-oriented. Jackie, I'll fix it for you. It's better, right? Just not very detail oriented. In the same way, there's people that, and that's just John. He's not detail oriented. Luke is very detailed oriented. Luke has given a very historical point by point account, but John not so much. And so John omits a couple of things in um, his gospel. He just he just doesn't put them in. And in fact, like as you read John's gospel, the omissions would be as Jesus will stand trial before the the two high priests who are the functioning high priests at the time, Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas, and then. Jesus will stand trial with the Sanhedrin. After that, John omits that. After that, Jesus will go to Pontius Pilate. He picks that up. But then there's a small break where Pontius where, uh, where Pontius Pilate will find out that Jesus is from Galilee. His hometown is Galilee. And then G- Pilate will say, hey, I don't have any jurisdiction over, over, uh, over you or over Galilee. That belongs to Herod uh, Antipas. And so then he'll send him to Herod. And when Jesus stands before Herod, uh, I think both in Luke and also in maybe uh, Matthew's gospel, they cover this, it kind of had the same thing occurs. Now, Herod Antipas isn't a good guy. It's the same Herod that had uh, John the Baptist beheaded. And not only did he have John the Baptist imprisoned, beheaded, but then he served his head up on a silver platter and then threw a party. And they danced the night away and partied and drank while John the Baptist The prophet of God, after 400 years of silence, his head is on a platter, right? So that's him. But nevertheless, when he meets Jesus, when when Jesus stands trial before him, he says the same thing that Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And it's here with Herod Antipas that Herod's uh, men, they come up with this uh, purple uh, robe or whatever it is, some outfit. Um, It's described in one of the gospels as splendid clothing, They give him this splendid clothing, they dress him up and they deliver him back over to Pilate. When he gets back over to Pilate, it's not Pilate's intention to murder, I mean, to crucify Jesus. It's not Pilate's intention to put him to death. We've seen this over and over and over again. And so Pilate's intention is simply to punish Jesus in a very strict and hard and horrific way, and then to release him. John chapter 19, verse one, it's pretty straightforward. John doesn't go into deliberate detail. John just says seven words, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Seven words, but the seven words are heartbreaking words. If we were a more liturgical church, and maybe some of you grew up in a liturgical tradition, uh, maybe each week you would recite the Apostles' Creed. Occasionally, we do the Apostles' Creed. At some point, we will actually do a sermon series in the Apostles' Creed. But in the Apostles' Creed, there's one line that that kind of uh, runs parallel to what's happening here. It is simply this line, four words, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Actually, it just says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, four words. And listen, we must fight the tendency to look away. I don't know about you, uh, but I don't like thinking about any kind of trauma. I don't watch TV shows, I know some of you do, but I don't watch TV shows where they show blood and trauma and people suffering. I don't, I just can't, I don't want to, I don't think about that. I mean, certainly whenever it comes to like acting, I still don't like that. And then even more, whenever it's a reality series or some show that's showing some some drama of something that really happened, my tendency is to look away. And in the same way, I want to look away from this verse. I want to look away from the thoughts of this, the occurrence of this. What's happening here? I, those of you that know me, I like to keep things lighthearted. I like to interject uh, humor. If the, if the room or the situation gets too heavy, the conversation gets too heavy, I sometimes will fault will come in with some smart aleck word or, or phrase or something to bring humor into it. But that's just my tendency to run. I've been fighting that tendency all week because I've studied for the sermon as I've come. my, My wife can attest that my heart has just been so heavy. I've been getting up early in the morning and I go to work on my sermon, which is my normal routine. And then there's just this heaviness throughout the day. But I think it's all right. That as we read this, we see the price paid for our sin. We see the effects of our sin. We see the effects of our rebellion, that Jesus is bearing the punishment for sin. As I've already said, not just generic sin, not demic sin, but for our sin, that our sin, our rebellion, our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions, our turning from God, our running astray, all of that has consequences to it. And the consequences are suffering and pain and death And we see that here in Jesus's life. Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. Jesus is flogged. Maybe your Bible says Jesus is scourged. We no longer live in a society where we flog or where we scourge or where we cane people, thankfully. It's a strict form of punishment. And the Romans even, they knew how how to take it up a notch. The Romans knew how to inflict this kind of punishment. This isn't a caning. This isn't a responsible whipping. This isn't, this is a beating or even worse. But the Romans had, uh, they, they brought into the, what the, the, the instrument used was a, a whip, um, sometimes called a cat of nine tails. It would have been a, probably a a wooden, had a wooden handle on it, maybe a a foot, 18 inches long. Tied to that wooden handle, they would have had strips of leather, a couple of feet in length. Um, that's like cat of nine tails, probably maybe nine to a dozen, something like that um, would be these strips of leather tied to this handle. And then embedded into the leather on the ends would have been sharpened pieces of metal, maybe some broken pottery, pieces of bone, pieces of lead would have been embedded into the, into the, the leather. Whipping was not the goal, but shredding would be the goal. The whip would literally shred the flesh from the person. The metal would pierce and puncture the skin and then the guard would jerk it, pulling and ripping the flesh. Flogging like this was so horrific that Roman citizens were exempt from it. We see that in Acts chapter 22. They're about to scourge the apostle Paul and Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. They say, hold everything. We can't do this to a Roman citizen. You need to go to Rome. But nevertheless, they do it to Jesus. Jesus' back is drawn taunt and they flog him. And as if the flogging wasn't worse enough to make it even more horrific, Jesus is mocked and he's beaten. Verse number two, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe and they came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and they struck him with their hands. The scourging wasn't enough. They wanted to torture him. They wanted to mock him. They wanted to ridicule them. He wanted to humiliate him. They slapped him around, bounced him around, punched him around. They came up to him mocking. They made a scepter of reeds or, or a, a thing of reeds that they called a scepter. They handed it to him and then they would jerk it away from him, striking him with it. They forced a crown of thorns upon his head. They plucked the beard from his face. They spat upon him. And the irony of all ironies, they're doing this to the king of kings. Verse number five. So Jesus came out wearing the crown and of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. This is Jesus's public humiliation. It wasn't enough for them to humiliate Jesus in private. Now they're going to, they're going to humiliate him in public. And so they push him out in front of the crowd. Now Pilate thinks this should be sufficient that that his punishment of Jesus should be sufficient, that their thirst for Jesus's blood should now be quenched, but it's not. Verse number six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Now listen, Pilate, as I've already said, he doesn't want to crucify Jesus. One, he doesn't want to crucify him because he doesn't think he's guilty. Number two, he doesn't want to crucify him because, because Pilate is, a, as, as most Romans would have been, as probably a superstitious man. And he understands that Jesus is a, is, is a holy man, that you know Jesus is a, a spiritual teacher. It's even been confirmed to Pilate by Pilate's wife. That very the night, the night before on Thursday night, Pilate's wife has a dream about Jesus in which she's told in this dream for Pilate to have nothing to do with this man. And so she gets word to Pilate. So Pilate knows that. Verse number seven, then the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he have made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And yet what does Pilate do? From then on, it says, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate is a slave to both power and authority. And as a slave to power and authority, Pilate is unable to do the right thing because he's afraid of losing power and authority. The only people that can freely exercise power and authority are the people who aren't afraid of losing power and authority. Now there's a good word in there about our politicians. We could just leave that aside, but there's truth to that. That what we see in Pilate is a fear of losing power and authority. The threat that they give him is, hey, if you don't do what we, want to, what we tell you to do, we'll tell Caesar and then Caesar will take away your power and will take away your authority. And so Pilate, in an effort to keep power and authority, he does what he, what he knows to be wrong. He goes against what he wants to do and he has Jesus be crucified. A couple of practical applications for us that I want us to think about. First is this, and if you wanna write these down, it would be great. Um, they'll, they'll be back there, but they won't be up here. But number one, Jesus goes to the cross as a sovereign king. That's the first thing I want to just continually remind you of, is that Jesus goes to the cross as a sovereign king. The Jesus is in complete control. What I said last week is if, if, this, was a, if this was a play Jesus would be the writer and the director and the producer and the main character, that it's all about Jesus, but nothing is happening outside of Jesus' control, even the scourging. That this scourging isn't an accidental pit stop on the way to the cross. This isn't just a, a, a deplorable picture of man's humanity here. This is prophetic. Jesus himself has already prophesied it. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, verse 17, Jesus said this. And then Jesus, as he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way. So this is before Palm Sunday. This is on the way up to Jerusalem. He said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and will, be condemned, and will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. To be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified, and then he would be raised on the third day. This is prof- prophetic through the mouth of Jesus, but it's prophetic all throughout scripture. In fact, the first prophecy of what we read occurring here happens all the way back in the book of Genesis. Then in Genesis, the third chapter, as God comes and God levies the curse for man's sin, he speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman, and then he speaks to the serpent. And in that curse that he gives to the serpent, there is a word of warning. It's called the pro, proto-evangelon. It's, the, pre, it's the, the, the the first mention of the gospel we ever see in the Bible. Whenever God tells the serpent, when he tells Satan, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be an offspring of the woman who's going to be born. And when he comes, you will bruise his head, but he, or you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The crushing of Satan's head will happen on the cross. The bruising of Christ's heel is happening here as Jesus is being beaten, as Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed and as Jesus will be nailed to a cross and where Jesus would die. This is the bruising, but the crushing is yet to come. It's throughout the Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah as well. As I already mentioned, Isaiah calls Jesus the suffering servant, but I think it would do us well to be reminded of this prophetic word. As we think about what's occurring in John 18, we see it happening in uh, Isaiah 52. He begins in verse number 13. This is what the prophet Isaiah says, "'Behold, my servant shall act wisely.'" He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that's a picture of, that's a picture of crucifixion. That's what he's preaching about. That's what he's talking about is he's going to be crucified. That Jesus's crucifixion is what the world meant in to humiliate Jesus and to mock Jesus and to kill Jesus. But what he's saying is, no, that is also, that is when his exaltation begins is on the cross. Remember what Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. What he's speaking about is Jesus's power because of the cross to purchase men to himself, to worship him, to praise him, to be his church, to be with him for eternity. It had to come through his being lifted up on the cross and the prophet Isaiah is saying that. Behold my servant, he will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted and many were astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. This is because of the beating. His form beyond that of a child of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We'll get back there. And he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So we opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he has been taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It has been said, and I guess in an attempt to be poetic, it has been said that God's love and God's justice kiss at the cross. It is God's love or God's, even they would say God's mercy, but even further, I think it's God's love. It's God's love and it's God's justice that kiss at the cross. When Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 53, one, and he asks the question to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What Isaiah is pointing at and picturing that is the arm of the Lord is the strength of God. It is the strength of God. We, we would ask like, well, how strong are you? Well, let me see those muscles, right? My little daughter, uh, Safira Jane, she walks around all the time flexing her muscles. Like, look how strong I am right here. I'm going to eat these. She'll just be like, I'm going to eat this one carrot and then I'm going to grow big and really big and strong. Watch me, you know, eat Ugh, feel these muscles after one carrot. What are, what are they doing there? What are we talking about? Like, let me feel those muscles. Let me see those arms. We're saying, how strong are you? And that's why the, uh, Isaiah says, it is the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Isaiah is speaking about the arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, not just the power and the might of the Lord, but the justice of God. How strong is God in order to bring justice? Because all around us, we see injustice. And how strong is God to bring justice? To whom is it being revealed? It is being revealed in Jesus. The arm of the Lord is not just Jesus's strength, and bearing up under this torture and abuse, but the arm of the Lord is the strength and the force in which God executes his righteous judgment for sin. The awfulness of what is happening to Jesus here in this moment, it reveals to us the expanse between God's holiness and our sinfulness. What is occurring to Jesus here on a theological level is showing us the depth of our depravity in sin, the consequences of our sin. And it is also revealing to us the height of God's holiness, that God had to punish sin, God has to punish sin. God wouldn't be good if he didn't punish sin. If God didn't punish sin and allow disobedience, he wouldn't be just, where's justice in that? Parents, you and I, we get this, right? When our children disobey us, now I'm not talking about some arbitrary rule that we set forth, but when our parent, when our children disobey us in matters that will will, will um, harm their well-being, what do we have to do? We have to, as good parents, we have to drop the hammer, right? We have to punish that. When my older brother John rode his big wheel out into the highway when he was a kid, after my dad warned him, "Don't ride your big wheel out in the highway," right? I'm not talking about a street, I'm talking about a highway. What happened? I can tell you what happened. Old Butch dropped the hammer on Johnny. That's what happened. Mug never rode his big wheel in the highway again. Why? Out of love for his his child. And in the same way, God, out of his sense of justice and God in his holiness, God must punish sin. When Adam sinned in the garden, God had to punish his sin that because of God's holiness, because of God's goodness, he had to uphold his standard of righteousness when it had been broken. The arm of the Lord had to been revealed. When this lump of dirt pretended, rebelled against its creator and pretended that it would call the shots on the planet, that which was created was gonna boss the creation around. You think God, the righteous, God, the just can just, Say, hey, no big deal. Good luck with that, Adam. No. Where would justice and where would righteousness be in that? How would God be holy in that? And God had to, he had to punish that. God, the righteous one, out of his holiness, he was too holy and too good to let it go. And in his goodness, he punished sin. And he punishes sin. And God is so powerful that he executes the punish. Meant for sin. Now, how does God punish sin? Well, we can think of, again, we're talking about grand sin here. We're talking about universal sin, not just our individual sins, but Adamic sin that, that, that Adam has brought in. How does God punish it? Well, three ways that God punishes sin. First of all is God punishes sin on a temporary basis in the curse. That the curse, what we find in Genesis 3, it comes because God is bringing punishment to his creation. Suffering and sickness and thorns and thistles and even death is introduced into God's perfect design for this creation. Man is turned over, turned over to a debased mind, a reprobate mind. Paul picks this up in Romans, the first chapter. He gives gives them up. He gives them up to a reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done. And from that becomes all sorts of relational upheaval, right? Murder and crime and brutality and war. And we all live under that. We all live under that sentence as Paul talks about uh, later on, even in Romans the eighth chapter, that God has subjected this creation to futility. And creation has given in to that because God is the creator, not willingly, but it has come in because of God and what's happening there. God is punishing mankind for sin. The first way is in the curse. The second way is in hell. God will punish sin for an eternity of suffering in utter darkness, in a place of torment, in a place of agony. Straight Bible. He will punish sin in hell. And thirdly, God punishes sin in Jesus. He punishes sin in the curse. He punishes sin in hell. And thirdly, we see it here, he's punishing sin in Jesus. And Jesus brutal beating and the lashes upon his back and being mocked, spat upon, crucified, and ultimately dying. And these are hard punishments. And maybe we could ask, well, does, does the punishment fit the crime? Does the punishment, such harsh punishments, does it fit the crime of sin? I mean, it's, doesn't it doesn't seem like God's been a little harsh Possibly a little capricious here. And when we say that, it's because we don't understand what sin is. We don't really understand the depths of what sin is. In fact, though, it's irony in this this text. The thing that Jesus is being accused of, the thing that they will ultimately crucify Jesus for is that he claims to be God. They say it's blasphemy, he claims to be God. And they'll have Jesus to be crucified. And yet the very crux of sin is that you and I claim to be God. Not in a blasphemous way, but in a pride-filled rebellious way. When we refuse to submit to God's laws, we refuse to submit to God's ways. We say, I'll do it my way. I'll live however I want to do. I don't need you. What are we doing in that? We're saying, God, I don't need you. I can be my own God. We were attempting to be our own gods. And that's what Jesus is dying for here. The men that torture Jesus, they serve as a picture of the depth of, of depravity for us. These men that, tur- that, that torture Jesus, it's not like they drummed up, who's the roughest old boys we can find around? Well, let's go up in Bald Knob, right? Because there's Bald Knob in Rome. And let's gra- uh, I mean, in Jerusalem, let's go up there and let's gather us up some rough old boys and let them come down here and turn them loose on Jesus. That's not what's happened here. What we have here is a picture of man being turned over to its depravity. It is the real picture of every human heart, of every human soul. See, in our arrogance, we think a sense of morality and a sense of conscience is something that we muster up and that we drum up, and it's not. Even your sense of morality, your sense of right from wrong, even your conscience that, that forbids you, that reigns you in from doing evil. Even that is God's gift of grace, common grace that he has upon his creation. That we see in these old boys beating Jesus as we see a true picture of all of us. We see this because Paul picks this up in Romans chapter three, when he talks about the depth of human depravity, listen to how Paul describes it. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of humanity, that's all of us. He's saying, our throats are an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom of of asp is under our lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In the path are ruin and misery and the way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That is the picture of humanity. Paul says later on in Romans the eighth chapter, he says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind is in strife. It is at war against God. The human heart is anti-God. The human heart left to its own is not only just anti-God, it's pro-Satan because the human heart belongs to this world, this kingdom where Satan rules. That ultimately the depth of the fall is being displayed in their hatred to Jesus. And how can a just and righteous God not punish that kind of evil and that kind of insubordination? And he does, and he will. While I was on vacation this summer, I, I got to spend some time with, uh, with one of my aunts. It's um, one of my favorite aunts, my mom's sister, my aunt Kim. And uh, spent some time, time with her um, down in uh, her condo, um, nice little place you would rented and by side the pool in St. Petersburg. And we're just kind of kicked back. It was late in the evening and we're relaxing. And my Aunt Kim begins to tell me about a, com- a comedy show that she'd seen on, I think probably HBO. Some comedian, I don't even remember who it was, but she's telling me about this and I'm just kind of listening along halfway through. And then um, she says, yeah. And so this comedian just comes right out and this comedian says that he's an atheist. And then as part of his shtick, as part of his routine, he begins to, to mock God. And she says that he says in there like if this God really existed if he could show up like I would ask God one question. And here would be his question. I would say God, if you are all powerful like you claim to be and you are all knowing and you're all wise and yet there's all of this evil and there's all of this suffering in this world that evidently comes from Satan, then why don't you just just use some of that power to destroy Satan? and rid this world of all of this evil and all of this suffering. And then my aunt says, Andy, what would you tell him? Now, I don't know how you guys do vacation, but here's how we do vacation. Laid back, doing nothing, right? That's how we do vacation. Like we just like, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere, we're on vacation you know, flip-flops, kickback. last thing I'm thinking about is theological and philosophical questions, right? I mean, I had something on my mind, but I think what was on my mind at that moment is we're gonna eat pizza or wings tonight. That's what's on my mind, right? And I think I just said to my aunt, I don't know. Like right now, I don't know. And then I thought about it for about six minutes. And I said, well, Here's what I would say. I didn't get a chance to tell my Aunt Kim. And so Aunt Kim, here's what I would say to your comedian that you watched. Why doesn't God, who is all powerful and all knowing, why doesn't he just kick Satan's tail and end this world of evil and suffering? He did. Well, he did the first part. In the cross of Christ, he is crushing his head. That whenever he threw the very, whenever Satan threw the very best that he had, which was death, at Jesus, Jesus conquers it. Whenever he throws the very best in the punishment for sin, Jesus conquers it. That in the cross, Satan is defeated and he will do away with all of this suffering and evil. But also in the cross and in the suffering, also in that, before he gets to the cross, Jesus submits himself to the suffering and the evil that you and I experience. See, the commonality between us as humans is we all understand from one degree to another a sense of suffering, do we not? We all understand a sense of death. I think probably all of us in here have loved ones who have died and people that we miss and people that we love And we understand that. But before Jesus defeats Satan, Jesus submits himself, willingly submits himself to suffering. Like, I don't know the fact that it's common that all of us have experienced suffering. I don't know how much comfort that really brings to you, but here is a comforting thought to me that Jesus understands. And that Jesus knows that Jesus has experienced suffering. That Jesus will experience suffering. He will be beaten. He will be tortured. He experiences death. He will die. And then he will rise again. And after he rises again, he will then ascend to heaven where he sits, reigning and ruling over the cosmos. And then he will invite those who are willing, those who want, those who desire, those who long to know him, he will invite you to come and to know him, to have, to believe in him, to pray to him, to talk to him, to have fellowship with him. And when you do, when you go to Jesus to pray, when you pray and we come to Jesus, we come to you in the name of Jesus, we're praying to you, Jesus, and by your name, when we pray, then we pray to a God who fully understands what suffering feels like, who fully understands what loss feels like, who fully understands what humanness feels like, who fully understands all of those things. As Rich Mullins said, when you come to Jesus, he knows what it's like to suffer and you'll find that he's there. So the first thing is he does, he does defeat Satan. He did it, he did it in a cross. And now what about all this evil and suffering? He will. Two-part answer, he did and he will. He will finally and forever do away with Satan and his demons. And as John writes in Revelation, and Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. The former things will pass away and behold, all things will be new. Well, when's he going to do it? When is he going to finally and forever do away with the evil and suffering of this world? When will that occur? When will that happen? I don't know. But as Peter writes in Second Peter, don't mistake his slowness. Don't think he's just being slow here. But what is he doing? He's being patient. And what is he waiting on? Well, this is what I would tell the comedian he's waiting on sinners like you to repent. He's being patient with his creation, not wishing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. He's being patient with you. Those of you in the room who have yet to bow to Jesus. Those of you in the the room who are yet born again, born from above. Those of you in the room who yet love Jesus with the way that he is to be loved, who follow Jesus with a fervency, who follow after Jesus, who long to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to live in a way that glorifies Jesus and not yourself. He's being patient for you, waiting on you to repent, waiting on you to come to him, to believe in him, to bow a knee before him, to confess him as the Lord and the savior that he is over your life. He's waiting on you. It is the expanse of God's holiness, the expanse and the depth of your sinfulness has been put on display. Your sin is not some small matter. If your sin was some small matter, God could have taken care of it like that. It was no small matter, it was cosmic treason. So he sent his perfect son to live the life that you could not live, to die the death you deserve, to take the beating that you deserved, to rise in your place so that you may believe in him. He's a substitutionary lamb of God offered up for your and mine sin. Not only do we see the height of God's holiness, the depth of our sinfulness, we also see in this the expanse of God's love for us. When I give my wife that gift, How much did it cost? It cost a lot, because I love you a lot. When you think of this text, why? Because Jesus loves you. It's for his love for you. It's for his special, specific love for you. Isaiah 53, four through six. Just a reminder. Surely he has borne our, listen, surely he has borne our, Our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father, how, as we sing often, how deep is your love for us? how vast beyond all measure that you would give your only son to make wretches like us your treasure. As we spend time, especially thinking this morning about your body being broken as it's observed in this cut up pieces of bread, May it elicit worship from us. That may songs of praise fill up this room. May prayers and confessions and repentance of sin, may it fill up this room. And Lord, may we go forth living on mission, telling of this great love, sharing it with our loved ones and our neighbors. What great news we have to share that all of our iniquity and all of our sin has been laid upon your son and he has done away with it. That you've lavished upon us the great riches of your grace and your mercy and now we stand firmly, feet planted firmly in salvation in in a place of grace. Grace in a place of love, and a place of being received, that because, Jesus, you were rejected, we are received. Oh, may we drink that in in this hour. May we drink this in in this moment as we come. May, may the cup that represents your blood may it have never tasted any sweeter than it would taste to us in this moment as we remember what we've just read from your holy word as we remember what they did to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.